0: Welcome to All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time. Our podcast offers friendly conversations with inspiring individuals in the autism community. All Autism Talk is brought to you by Learn Behavioral and the Learn Provider Network. Now here's your host.
1: Hi everybody, welcome to this week's episode of All Autism Talk. This week I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Pamela Feliciano, the Scientific Director of SPARC, one of the world's largest autism research studies. In addition to being a researcher, she's also a mom of an autistic child. One of my key takeaways from this conversation was that she said, behind every piece of data is a person. And I think that's really reflective of the Spark approach and how much they respect and support each of the individual families. I hope you learn a lot from this conversation with Dr. Pamela Feliciano. Hi, Pam, thanks so much for being here.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So I really want us to talk about um, genetics and how uh, all the research you're doing is leading us to more information about genetics. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what we currently know about genetics and autism?
0: Sure. Um, So most people don't quite realize this, but autism is quite heritable. And um, has a very strong component of genetics, um, and we know we've known this since the 1970s. So, in the 1970s, there were twin studies that were published, um, looking at the rates of autism in identical twins, comparing them to fraternal twins, and comparing them to siblings. And if you look at these three groups, um, all of which have different uh, shared amount of genetic material. Um, In identical twins, the concordance rate in autism is very high. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 to 80%. Um, That means if one identical twin has autism, um, 70 to 80% of the time, the other identical twin has it. Um, And if you look at fraternal twins, that percentage is lower. It's about anywhere between 30 and 40%, depending on what study you're looking at. Um, and that is lower than identical twins, um, but higher than full siblings, even though fraternal twins share the same amount of genetic um, material as as full siblings so um, the the percentage in siblings is somewhere between ten and twenty percent um, and what all of that tells us is that there is a strong heritable genetic component to autism, um, but there's also an environmental effect um, and there's um, been work done in this area, and we know less, I would say, about the environmental risk factors that play a role in autism. Although there has been some some progress in this area, um, so. Since then, uh, scientists have been trying to discover the types of genes that are involved in autism. Autism is very complicated. Um, it's very heterogeneous, not just in how it presents. So people with autism can be, can be somewhere on a very wide spectrum. Um, but the genetics of autism is very heterogeneous too. So we've I identified probably almost 200 genes that are involved in autism. Um, but we think that there are probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 to 1,000 genes involved in autism. And um, it, it makes it a complicated condition to study and try to understand at the cellular level what's happening in someone with autism um, and what makes their um, their cells different than someone without autism. Um, but we definitely have made progress. And um, the 200 genes that have been discovered so far um, allow scientists a way to study a way in it's an anchor right. so when you understand the genes that are involved you can look at those genes in um, developing developing neurons in, in mouse models and animal models in vitro and and, and um, also in humans and try to understand what's happening and where um, the genes are not um, working as they as they they might be in someone without mm-hmm. autism
1: that's so fascinating. I have so many questions because I'm uh, how did how did we even get the first two hundred? Was it really just trial and error, go try um, and see? No,
0: what? no. But um, so the very first genes um, were probably discovered, I would say, in the nineteen nineties. Um, so things like Rhett syndrome and fragile X. Um, there are different different ways. In I mean, it was basically just studying. Um, a lot of humans and also um, looking at animal models. Um, I think there is starting to be an appreciation for the type of genetic variants that are involved in autism. So um, many people with autism don't have any history of autism in their families. Mm -hmm. And that's there are many reasons for that, but one reason that we've we realized in the past 15 years that's important are um, changes that occur in the sperm or the egg that makes that person. So this is not something that is inherited directly from a parent. So the parent doesn't have this change themselves. It's just in the single sperm or egg that made the child. Um, so these types of mutations are known as de novo mutations, and um, probably 10 to 20% of autism can be explained by these types of genetic differences. Um, so what happened with those with those types of differences, um, I guess this was probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, people hypothesized that these might play a role, so they looked for them. And they were able to identify um, genes and big um, sections of the human genome that were um, found in multiple people with autism. And then eventually they were able to find, gosh, maybe 30 or 40 different places in the human genome that are um, that are different in people with autism and, and work occurring in a de novo fashion. And f- since then, as technologies have gotten better for sequencing exomes, and that happened in the early 2000s, um, we've, it's been possible to sequence uh, a human's DNA material.
1: It's so incredible. I, I'm wondering, you know, as we progress down, down the genetic research path, at some point, it are we going to, is this going to improve our diagnostic tools and, and things of that nature?
0: Um. So, yeah. So what comes first, the diagnosis or, or the behavioral diagnosis? I mean, I think autism right now is still and, and will be for a long time a, a behavioral diagnosis. We're not at the point where we understand autism well enough to, to that we have a, a um, some kind of biochemical marker that would help with like really early diagnosis. I think that um, there is a future in which genetic sequencing can help with diagnosis, but I think it's mostly going to help um, guide research um, and help scientists understand the differences in, in the cells of people with autism compared to people that don't. And by looking at that and being able to understand that, um, we'll be able to get to some treatments for the core symptoms of autism. So if you think about a condition like diabetes or cancer, where if you ask someone on the street, you know, what causes diabetes, like we we all know that it's it's an insulin um, problem. And there, you know, we know that the pancreas is involved and that people's kidneys don't don't function. Um, Or in cancer, we know what the what the what the what the differences are um and but in autism we don't have that at the cellular level we can't we can't explain what's happening and I think understanding the genes will get us there
1: yeah and I imagine it would probably open up a whole host of other information also right uh, it would probably inform uh, you know I don't know medications uh, diets or you know, all that would have to at least continue to be a part of the conversation at that point right
0: yeah yeah I I for the most part, the results, the genetic results that we return, are not necessarily helpful at, at this moment for for better for um, treatments. Um, there aren't any treatments for autism at this time. Core uh, of medical, like pharmaceutical treatments, not not ABA, right, obviously. Right, right, right. I'm a, I'm a huge ABA person, um, <laughs> so there are no pharmacological treatments for the core symptoms of autism. But um, as we get to a deeper understanding of what autism really is, um, I think that there will be a lot of opportunities for that knowledge to um, be used and be helpful for families.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, more and more, the more people I talk to, the more I realize that Research is so important, and i I feel like we're really I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I feel like we're really scratching the surface on what mm-hmm. we need to know um yeah, and you know you you said it we've we've got about two hundred genes identified, but you're anticipating five hundred or a thousand i mean that means we're you know we've still got a long way to go right?
0: yeah yeah so Can you tell
1: us a little bit about kind of the importance of research in general and specifically the genetic research that you're doing?
0: Sure, sure. So I would say that the biggest reason to participate in genetic research in autism is that because um, this will just help researchers understand the biology of autism and be able to explain, give people an explanation of what autism is. Um, it will be different in many people, but there will be some similarities, and in, in others that you, we may not expect. Um, and I think that with getting to that biological understanding of autism, we're going to move the fields. St- much forward and be able to try to develop treatments for the core symptoms of autism for people who are wanting those treatments. Not, you know, not everybody on the spectrum wants or or needs treatments for these core symptoms, but a lot of people do. Um, uh, My son has intellectual disability and pretty severe language impairments. He's 17, but, you know, it is disheartening to go to his IEP meeting and see that as percentile of Um, you know, certain language skills are in the below one percentile. And do I think that there's possibility of a pharmaceutical treatment that will help with that? I do. And I I think the only way that we can get there is if we understand what's what's happening in the the cells of people with autism. And we don't know that yet. And genetics and biology is one way of getting there. Um, It's slow going. But there's been so much progress made in the past decade, even since he was diagnosed. Um, he just turned 17. So that was 14 years ago. Um, I would say probably 100 genes have been discovered since, since he was wow. diagnosed. And um, the landscape is very different. And, um, you know, I think that there, there are a lot of people on the spectrum where treatments are are needed and, and desired.
1: Yeah. It's so, it. It sounds like what you just said. It sounds like uh, the research is picking up in terms of speed. Is that an accurate statement, um, or is it that I we're mean, getting uh, better at identifying? Like, well, it... I
0: I think the the big game changer for genetics is is certainly the advent of these next generation sequencing technologies, which came online about a decade ago, and so they definitely you know in the first two, three, four years they were available. They were still very expensive, but now. Um, it is economical for researchers to sequence as many people as we can find, and and be able to use that data, um, and and try to get the mine it and and get all the information we can out of it um, to to deepen our understanding.
1: I want to. I have a question for you about your son and how that impacts you and your drive and your decision making and your your research is i imagine yeah. plays a big part but i would love to hear your perspective on that
0: yeah i mean i think there there are a couple of ways that i think he my experience with him influences what, the way i think and what motivates me um i think with spark under really understanding what it means to be an autism mom and an autism family um i think i have a deep connection and, and deep understanding of our participants, not everybody. I mean, again, the spectrum is very, very wide. And, right. you know, I, I certainly don't have the experience of many, many people, but I think they're, you know, when you meet another autism mom, you immediately start talking about your kid and, and where they are in the spectrum and what you've done and what they do and, you know, all the things. <laughs> so, um, and I, Brilliant. so I think there's that. But I also think that just living with autism every day, I, I get it. And um, I really do hope that one day that there will be some treatments for the core symptoms of autism. Um, Just like Dylan has medication for ADHD that really helps him, you know, something that would help Along the repetitive behavior domain or the social communication domain to just help him a little bit combined with the ABA, I think, you know, could be a real game changer. And that thinking about that and thinking that it is definitely within our reach definitely drives me. And then, one final thing I'll say is that I think that no matter what, I always remember that behind all the data, there are people. And, you know, I I get to analyze a lot of very large data sets with you know tens of thousands of rows of data and I know that behind every single row is a person um maybe not exactly like my son but maybe like my son and with all of their unique challenges and unique characteristics um I mean my son has a lot of unique characteristics he loves the movie elf he loves hand dryers um, he has a love-hate relationship with smoke alarms. Yeah. Um, he's a very unique character and, you know, I think about that all the time. I think yeah. each row is, 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 is someone and, um, we have to respect all participants, their participation, be grateful for their participation. Sometimes I'm like, why are these people participating right. in so much effort? Um, but yeah, I, I think I just feel a lot of gratitude.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a great, that's such a phenomenal perspective. You know, it's, I think sometimes you, we get caught up and I, as a clinician, I get caught up in, I got to get this treatment plan written and I got to get this information out there and I got to get this graph to look right. And, oh man, my axes are messed up and, you know, it gets stuck in that. But the reality is it's information about a person, about a human, Mm -hmm. about somebody Mm -hmm. who may or may not need help, but, you know. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. in, in my situation, they, they're asked. They have asked for it. So it's it's such a great yeah. s- reminder of like the data is not the, the data tells part of the story, but there's a person, there's a, there's yeah. a human, and they're they're a part of yeah. the family, and they've got yeah. other environmental factors and all those things. You a question about the the CDC just released uh, a statement about um, one in 44 children uh, are, are diagnosed with autism um, right. what are your what are your thoughts on that
0: yeah so um, it's a big leap so the previous data was done um, from data two years before this data set I believe um, and in that data it was one in 56. Yeah. Um, So here we're at 144. Um, I think some of the positives out of that are that there's less disparity uh, between children of Caucasian ancestry and kids of of other ancestries. Um, I think Asian, Pacific Islander, African-American kids, the the numbers are higher. Um, So there is some positive. Um, coming out of this, that there's less disparity in at least in terms of getting a diagnosis. I think there's still many other disparities in other areas in terms of time time of diagnosis and and uh, the percent with comorbidities like intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think it's just we are we are at least getting much better at recognizing autism. Um, and I think that has really changed, even again, since the time my son was diagnosed. I think there's so much more awareness and um, uh, care taken to to look at the um, early signs of autism in the general pediatrician's office. So, you know, I think um, there there's a, a lot of awareness about autism now, so that's good. Um, but yeah there are a lot of kids that need help and um a lot of services that they need.
1: Right. right and I, you know the, the diagnosis is the first part of it right that there's still there's still a need for services and therapies or maybe not right I, you know depend every family again is unique right. but um I like that I like that point about oh, there's less disparity uh, you know I mean I I think well, I remember taking my kids to see the pediatrician and and there was a question you know let's talk about their mm-hmm. language let's talk about their mm-hmm. social interactions and and, right. and it wasn't anything in depth but it was at least bringing up the Something. conversation yep. which you know uh, my kids are 5 and 7 and so that wasn't mm-hmm. that long ago that those conversations yeah. were happening and so yeah. I'm, you know happy that, that we're having more of those conversations yeah. Yeah, um,
0: absolutely. And that, you know, the earlier the intervention, the better. And um, so that's what really, really matters, that kids are, are getting recognized um, earlier.
1: Right, right. Um, you know, I want to, I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, your research at Spark, and I want to hear a little bit about what you're doing and how you're using that information, Um so, I can you give us
0: a a little story yeah yeah sure sure. Forward. So, um, what I do with Spark is we analyze the genomic data and we identify the the genetic changes in in the kids or the people with autism in our in our study that we think are causing or a major genetic um, contribution to their autism. So in um, about 10% of participants so far, we've been able to identify some kind of genetic change that we think is um, significant for, for their for their autism. And um, in almost all cases, people do want to hear about this. And so we have contacted them. I think we're almost have returned a thousand results so far. Um, research is slow. It, it's not fast by any means, but, um, we are definitely working hard at it and, you know, identifying what th- some of the things I mentioned earlier, um, some of these de novo changes, some of them are inherited. Some of them are on the X-form itself. So the genes that are involved are very, are very numerous. Um, I think we've returned findings in 200 different things so far. And, um, what I can say is that all all the people who have gotten results are then invited to participate in um, a genetic registry that's specific to their condition. Um, so it's either a study at Simon's Foundation called Simon Searchlight, um, but there are many other different registries um, across the genetic landscape of autism. And so we hope that those people um, go on to participate in those and um, what researchers would like to do is to study large groups of people with the same genetic ideology um, and see look at those similarities and differences and compare them to others and By getting to a genotype or genetically driven research view of autism, we can start to learn more about what what makes um, people with autism of, of one gene versus people with autism with another gene and and try to understand it that way. Um, And, you know, it's slow going, but it's definitely coming along. And um, by analyzing everyone's data and finding the results, we're able to give this information to families. Um, And so there are a lot of things that go along with that. I mean, not just can they now participate in this genetically driven research, but I think for a lot of families, it's a bit of a relief to have an answer um, that's very medical in nature and, um, you know. It, it, I think it absolves a lot of parents of these um unnecessary feelings of guilt that a lot of families feel because if you you know with everything, it's hard to to if there isn't an objective cause, it's easy to try to find you know all the reasons, all the things that you did wrong that might be contributing right. so um you know i think for that that that's definitely been a positive for for many families.
1: Right. It was the one time I ate I ate non uh, non organic chips while I was pregnant. That yes, caused it, right? exactly. It like so it's easier. all the diet coke yeah. I
0: drank. Yeah.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. It's so yeah. easy to, to find that, and that's such a slippery slope. I mean, yes. Families have enough going on; they don't need to beat themselves yes. up for those yes. types of things. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. I want to go back to something you said, and and I'm hoping you can expand on it. But you said 10. percent of the participants in your study, you find a genetic change. Yeah. Is that from previous testing? Is that compared to other participants? Compared to their family members? Talk so
0: ten percent is is of. So we do exome sequencing. So that's sequencing of the twenty thousand genes across the human genome. Um, and by analyzing someone with autism's DNA, we can identify um, genetic changes that. Um, they're usually things that, that disrupt a gene's function. And so those kinds of, of changes are easy to spot in, in a sense because you can like map out what, what the cause would be, what the um, consequence would be of that change and then be able to identify things that are going to be disruptive to, to you know, a subset of genes or sometimes the chromosome material is duplicated or deleted, but it's involved genes that we know about. Um, But it's also iterative. So we're always reanalyzing the data and taking a closer look at things that we suspect might be um, causative, but we don't quite have enough data to show that it is. Um, And so by doing this iterative analysis, we're able to, you know, maybe this year we don't find something, but, you know, the following year we do. And that's happened multiple, you know, many times already where um, we've found something two or three years ago and said, oh, you know, let's. Keep this here in the swatch pile because it looks pretty interesting and could could be causal. Um, but then, you know, as publications come out and as we get more data, we're able to say with more certainty that, you know, these certain changes are, are involved in autism. And so we've been able to publish several papers um, describing our findings and um, identifying new autism genes. And we have a big paper under review right now and hopefully it will come out in the next few months
1: it's so interesting that like as you're describing this i'm realizing how uh how much we're really dependent on technology and how mm-hmm. the technology not existed you know i'm, I'm almost thinking like yes as science progresses and as the technology progresses then you can progress with your research but had yes. science not progressed then we would still be kind of yeah in, the dark a little bit and we wouldn't yeah, know yeah wouldn't absolutely it.
0: absolutely. Um, and i think this is across the board i mean just like i think the presence of genetics in our lives is is much more than it ever was i it's i you know with covid aside i mean everyone knows what a variant is now so that's good um so so there's one positive from covid but um You know i i think people are very familiar with sequencing and dna and 23andme and ancestry.com i mean i think all of these things have have been good for research um, because people are more familiar with what we're doing
1: so amazing so i have a question for you um what you know it sounds like there's a lot happening and there's a lot that that is being developed What's something that you were excited to learn uh, in the last year? Just
0: oh, that's a great question. Oh my goodness, I haven't gotten that one yet. Something that I was excited to learn in the past year. Um, Well, okay, so we've 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 touched on de novo mutations, right? De novo changes that occur in the egg or cell, but much more important are inherited risk factors. So these are differences, genetic differences that do get passed from a parent to a to a child with autism. Um, these things, by definition, are um, in genetics terms called less penetrant. So, less, there, these changes are are things that we're going to have less of an effect. So in the parents, they may or may not cause autism or other mental, you know, health conditions. Um, but in, in the kid with autism, things are different. And um, the kid with the, the child has autism. And so we've known for a long time that these kinds of inherited genetic risk factors are, are part of autism, but they're really hard to find because um, by definition, they're hard to find because if you're, um, if it's a variant that sometimes Leads um, to autism, but not always. It's hard to distinguish, um, make that distinction, and so you need a lot of, lot of data and a lot of people. And so, in the past year, we have been able to identify um, some genes that we think are acting this way, and um, we're excited to share these findings. And hopefully, in a few months, we'll have our paper. Paper out. Um, Our findings are already out there in the scientific literature, so we post them on um, the preprint server called BioArchive. So, this is a pre publication space where scientists share their um, findings with other people. Um, So, they already are out there, but we're, you know, the paper is under peer review right now. Um, And so, we think it's going to be really exciting to be able to say that we've identified, starting to identify different types of genetic changes. that are involved in autism because there's a much bigger piece of the genetic risk pie that is inherited versus the de novo risk, and so um, right. hopefully it's just the tip of the iceberg, and we can, with more data that we're always turning out at Spark, yeah. um, we'll be able to get into this much more and identify other things.
1: That's fascinating. Being able to find. I mean, in essence, in my head, I'm thinking yeah. almost it's like hide and seek, right? Like, yes. they're, they're trying to hide and they don't want to be found, maybe. Yeah. But you're trying to yes. find them and you found yes. them.
0: Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. So it's something that sometimes causes autism. Um, but if you find enough people um, with a change um, with, with autism, you know, you can show that statistically this is present in more people in autism than without. Even though it doesn't always lead to, you know, an autism diagnosis, maybe it leads to other other things like social anxiety or or language delay or something like that in the parent, but um, or maybe not. Right. Um, but yeah, it is with genetics. It is about you know finding those needles in the haystack and being have enough of the same in autism versus non-autism. Right. Right.
1: Well, I, you know, for me, I am, I'm just forever grateful and thankful that uh, we have a diverse group of people doing research to help us, you know, figure out all the, all the layers, if you will, of mm-hmm. autism, the genetic mm-hmm. components and and all of the behavioral yep. components. There's so much that goes into it that I, yeah, well, to all the researchers out there, thank you for trying to help us figure out what needs to be figured out so that we can plan for future generations and those to come. I think it's so
0: important. Yeah.
1: Uh, so, Pam, uh, for families who are going to participate in the Spark research, what, what's the involvement like for them? What, is that, what does participation look like?
0: Great. Um, so we designed Spark to so that you could participate from your couch um, if you so choose. So you just have to go to sparkforautism.org um, and sign up for an account. And if you want to participate in the genetic analysis, you can. You don't have to, but you can. And most people do. Um, and we'll mail you a saliva collection kit, so it's just a tube that you either will spit into, or if you the person with autism or, doesn't want to spit, you can squeegee or sponge the saliva out of their mouth um, and send in the saliva that way. Um, and then we'll send you a lot of links to questionnaires um, where we collect some information about um, the person with autism and the other symptoms that they have, family history, and other other stuff that's really helpful for researchers. Um, but another piece of Spark um, is that what we've wanted to do is build a cohort that is available to the entire research community. So researchers actually write applications and apply to Spark, um, And we have a committee that includes external scientists as well as people um, at the Science Foundation, where we look at the scientific merit of these different applications and decide, um, make sure that the studies are... Um, sound and, and have some scientific value. And then we'll contact people who are eligible for these studies, and they can choose to participate or not. So in this way, we're helping uh, the research community um, recruit participants for their own studies, because recruiting is really a, quite a challenge for, for many scientists and not what they, um, you know, have expertise in. And um it helps persistence too. They get to choose what they want to participate in, especially if they see you know, a research study that's on a topic that's, that's of interest to them. What we really try and do is return information that's helpful. Uh, before we started Spark, we heard a lot from um, parents and they told us that they had participated in research but never heard anything about what happened or what the results were. And yeah. so one piece of Spark is that we really... Um, value the the communication back to the participants. So we ask researchers to um, help us with that and so that participants aren't left hanging or, you know, not never told or never hear again about what happened. Um, just so that people can understand the importance of their of their efforts. Um, because, you know, participating in research when you are an autism family is challenging and we want to make sure that people are valued. So um, that's another piece of spark that um, I think is exciting for research, but also hopefully helpful for participants um, to be able to learn something um, about themselves.
1: In some ways, it's really paying it forward to other researchers, right? Being able to say, "Here, here are some, here are some other people who may be interested." But yes. then also, that that feedback is so important, right? Like, I would yes. want to know if I was involved yes. in a study, I would want to know yes. what was the data used for, how was it helpful? Yeah. Did I, you know, yeah. I, ultimately did my participation make a difference? A, right. And maybe not for me or, or for my family, but for somebody.
0: Right, 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 right. right. And just wanting to understand the impact. You know we want to we want to make sure that participants get um that feedback the information of what the results were and what that meant for the, the research community and what the next steps might be um in that researchers work
1: that's great i mean you know more and more i hear about people doing research finding research being involved in it and and it's great if people can if there's overlap you don't need to find, you know, I think to your point, a lot of researchers spend time trying to find participants. Um, you know, my yes. daughter's participated in a couple of research studies mm-hmm. where we live. And, yes. and finding the participants is hard and then following up. And then some of the studies yeah. are, you check in after two years or, you know, other right. things like that. It's, it's gotta be really difficult for researchers to overcome that barrier. So this is a yeah. great way to support the community in that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I we hope that by working at scale, you know, we, we get, get, get some gains of efficiency. Um, and I think that we have so far um, just by having the infrastructure and, and whole staff set up um, for this endeavor. We're able to um, keep going and, and keep turning out um, um, research studies.
1: Pam, where can we find more information about Spark? about uh, the research that you're doing? You, you mentioned uh, where there's some other publications. Where can we find all of that?
0: Um, you can go to sparkforautism.org. So everything that we've ever published is listed there. Um, everything that anyone has ever published on the SPARC um, cohort is listed there. There are probably up to, I don't know, 30, 40 publications um, that have come out um, looking at Spark data. Um, and... You know, information on how to join is there. There's a lot of many articles about different families, um, people who have received results, people who haven't, who have not received results, people who are independent adults, people who are um, impacted and, and have, have um, you know, need a lot of support. Um, so the, there are many different angles there.
1: Great. Well, thank you for the research you're doing and thank you for your time today. We really appreciate it and your insight. Thanks. I hope you learned as much as I did from that conversation with Dr. Pamela Feliciano and whether you're a participant in research or you value the information, I hope that you find this helpful in understanding how Spark runs their research and how they're supporting, not just the autism community, but also the research community as well. And if you're looking for more information, feel free to check out our show notes, where we'll have links to their website. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at autism therapies, and if you have a show suggestion or other feedback, feel free to send us an email at at learnbehavioral.com. And please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, take care. Be safe.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of All Autism Talk. This podcast is brought to you by Learn Behavioral, the leading network of providers serving children with autism and other special needs. Visit us at learnbehavioral.com. Listen to previous episodes at allautismtalk.com, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All Autism Talk, connecting the autism community one podcast at a time.